Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. This is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today we are going to do a little best of 2016 and looking on to what records I got coming in 2017. So I know a lot of people have already done their lists. You know, they like to do that at the end of December. I like to be a little bit more thorough and really listen to every album again and and digest it and, and make sure that it's fresh when I talk about it. So... We're going to get into that. Uh, first thing, I actually have two top tens. I have uh, the top ten and I have the honorable mentions. So I want to get into the uh, honorable mentions real quick. Side note, last year I started the year with a solo episode and it was kind of cool. I don't believe I've done one since, so I wanted to try that again here. So beginning here. The honorable mentions. A uh, couple of things. One, I would start with George Carlin. George Carlin released his first posthumous album, and that was something very significant to me because he's a humongous influence of mine in in the way that I write, the way that I think and perceive life. He was huge to me growing up and is huge to me now. He remains important. If you've ever spent any amount of time with me, I've probably quoted him to you many, many times. So what happened was George Carlin had prepared a special called I Kind of Like It When a Lot of People Die. And over the years in the, in the late 90s, his material was getting more and more dark and edgy and kind of nihilistic and almost like welcoming the shit show that is the human race and kind of stepping back and watching as everything unravels and he 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 had a, a really interesting perspective on it it's super funny and really fucked up so i kind of like it when a lot of people die he was recording uh, a version for himself i guess to listen to he recorded his own shows on september 10th 2001 we all know what happened the day after that. And so he had this special that was set to be recorded for HBO right after that. And if you listen to this recording from September 10th, you'll know why he couldn't have done that. And for me, having seen Complaints and Grievances, which is what aired in November 2001 live on HBO... I watched it as it aired at my dad's house, and I was really excited about it. I remember the day that I got the CD when it was released. Um, artwork done by Winston Smith, actually, who did the new album, My Band, Dead Fucking Serious. He did the album cover for Squalor. Uh, funny tie in there. But this album, Complaints and Grievances, he has to respond to 9-11, because not a lot of people are doing comedy right then, especially in New York. The world and, and the U.S. in particular kind of took some time off, right, from a lot of the entertainment things. People were unsure of what to do. How, do. how do we celebrate? How do we laugh or whatever? And so he had to do this kind of, you know, how do we combat terrorism? And, and he did it in a very lighthearted kind of silly way. And then he says, all right, let's get back into the show. I was planning to do right up until September 10th. And he goes into the next, like, 45 minutes of the show. However, this record, I kind of like it when a lot of people die, is not just, 
you know, 15 minutes of a different opening bit. It's, it's entirely different. One thing that I really found interesting about it is the, uh, the whole bit called Uncle Dave, which is kind of the closing piece. And it gives this play by play of a huge disaster that grows and grows. And, um, is again I told you he liked watching the demise of of humanity as as we have done to ourselves and there was a bit he did on life's worth losing which I believe was 2006 and that whole thing was about human behavior in relation to you know death and torture and and how we look highly of ourselves above the other species, but we behave in a more brutal, barbaric kind of way. So the end of that show was uh, an evolution of this bit, Uncle Dave, which we're hearing an early version of. And me as a writer, it's kind of great being able to hear that come together in its first time. And actually, there's a bonus track on this new CD that is an earlier, shittier recording of Carlin working out this bit on stage. And it's it's really great to hear two earlier versions of this large piece that's, that's just really a monstrous closing bit. It's really an achievement in his writing. So for me as a super fan, this record was really cool. You get to hear... You know, basically a fresh hour plus some stuff that that you have heard, but in a totally different way. And the tone of the show is entirely 180 degrees different from the kind of playful. Uh, uh, I mean, it was still edgy and fucked up, but like it, it's it's just a totally different show than we would have gotten uh, had 9/11 not changed his plans. So. George Carlin, kind of like it when a lot of people die. All right, now, real quick, I haven't been listening to a ton of rap music this year, but I would say that Henri Osborne and Carnage the Executioner, I know people that I actually am friends with, but those guys put out tremendous records this year. Duo from Henri was uh, just really interesting record. Every single song was a collaboration where he kind of, you know, temporarily forms a duo with, you know, Sadistic and then with Aesop and then with Rob Sonic. And it's it's a really cool record. It's very well executed. Um, I think it's more along the lines of Dark Time Sunshine than it is akin to Grayskull, uh, which actually I kind of like because, you know, it seems like he's been doing the Grayskull thing a lot the last couple of years. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I'll say that seeing it live was different because I was kind of made aware in that moment that like, wow, this is a really hard album to take on the road because if you're a solo artist and every song is with a guest, you know, you're really having to uh, manipulate that to work in your set. So that was interesting to see as well. I believe last time I saw him was South by Southwest, but I think I saw him a couple times this year doing duo stuff. Anyway, great production, really great writing. The only thing I think that would separate this from like being on the the, the actual top 10 
is that uh, I felt like a lot of it is just really dense. They don't necessarily feel like songs all the time. They're more like scenes. Like the whole thing kind of flows together. And there are some songs that have good choruses and stuff like that. But it, 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 it plays out almost more like a concept album, which is cool. But definitely something that you have to like sit and listen to as opposed to something you can just have on and enjoy i feel like so uh next i'll get to my man carnage and he put out the record minnesota mean movement which is just exceptional in the the concept the writing the execution uh no pun intended the flows and the the production i mean everything about it is just really really well done um the only thing that I would say takes that one from being in my my top ten is that uh, you know it's got a couple of live tracks which are rad and which would have been I feel like really good bonus tracks or something. But I I almost wanted more of the uh, the new content as well um, because may, and maybe it's because I've I've seen him a lot of times. It was exciting to get those live tracks, but. I didn't expect to hear like an old track mixed in there. You know what I'm saying? So there is Carnage, Minnesota Mean Movement. I would definitely check that shit out. It's a a record that came out on uh, my label Crush Kill this year. And uh, again, just insane flows, just the mastery of of delivery on this and the things that he's saying are things that nobody else is saying. So it's definitely worth checking out. So moving on, one of my favorite bands is the deer hunter. And there's two bands with uh, that name. There's deer hunter, which is spelled like the movie and like, you know, the animal. And then there's the deer hunter, which is D E A R. And that is a group by Casey Crescenzo. And he is an amazing songwriter. He has, not just made these concept albums, but he's made them continuous. So each one continues the story of the last one. Act uh, Act 5. Yeah, this is Act 5. We've been waiting for it for a long time. The band kind of got back to Act 4 last year, and it was really, really impressive. Probably the best one they'd ever done. And apparently this one was written and, and recorded at the same time. And they're a band that goes from you know, proggy to, you know, like vaudeville. It's just all over the place in the kind of music that they, that they make. I think it's very akin to Freddie Mercury or even into the band Jellyfish in the nineties. Um, I think that it's an extraordinary piece of work, this new album, act five, but there was also, again, something about it that just wasn't it didn't grab me in the same way. I didn't find myself singing along as much as I did with some of the other records. And it still has all the emotion and the great writing that continues the story. You know, it's a great record, executed very well, but uh, I don't know, something about it just didn't hit me the same way. And I will say part of this might have been because I bought it on tour, on the World Has No Idea tour, and, you know, I had other artists in the car so I wasn't able to just like blast it and listen to it really you know a big part of a new record for me is is buying it the day it comes out taking it home opening the lyric book and listening to the whole thing on the couch with the lyrics the whole time for the first time that's what I did with all their other albums maybe I just missed that on this one because when I listen to it I enjoy it but I also feel like I don't I don't know it I'm not as invested in it for some reason so moving on no effects 
and Psalm 41. I'm going to group these together in a way because both of them have really great songs and then they also have a couple mediocre songs. Seems like they were almost a little uh, lacking in the production. That's kind of what did it for me. In Psalm 41, I feel like Derek, the singer, Derek Wibley, produced and engineered it himself. He did a fantastic job. I was really impressed by this, especially a guy who was practically dead two years ago. I'm really impressed that this thing even exists, that it came out, and that it was such a return to form and their sound. But I feel like it starts out really, really strong and then just kind of loses steam in the end. And I bought the deluxe edition that has a couple of bonus tracks, but unfortunately the bonus tracks don't really pick up the steam at the end either. You know, you could see why they were cut. They're, you know, they're good, they're fine, but not great. And then the last two after that being, uh, you know, slower acoustic versions of, of earlier songs. So kind of left me wanting more when the album started out. I couldn't get enough of it. You know, the first one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, seven, eight songs are just are really strong. And I really enjoyed it. And apologies if you can hear my dog barking in the background. But yeah, I kind of lost it there at the end for some 41. No effects. This is the first album they've done in many, many years, more than a decade, I think, that was not done with Bill Stevenson and Jason Livermore uh, from the Blasting Room Studios, also from The Descendants. And they produce all my favorite punk records for the most part. I mean, Propagandi and No Effects and A Wilhelm Scream and Good Riddance, you know, all of those bands come out of this studio. And they needed more time on this record. And it was kind of going to say some things that Fat Mike had never said before about himself and trying to get sober for a while and, you know, things like that kind of on the heels of their new book the hepatitis bathtub and other stories which is a fucking fantastic book highly recommended probably the most exciting thing i read all year is amazing but um going through that led to some weird kind of soul searching like midlife crisis songs and the first song which was the first single six years on dope was about smelly the drummer eric sandin is about his experiences with heroin, which he talks about in the book. And it's an awesome song. It's kind of a mid-tempo, totally not no effectsy, typical, you know, fast. You know, it's not like that at all. It's it's like a really heavy 80s, you know, thrashy kind of hardcore song. And I was really excited when I heard it. And then immediately the second track just drops off and starts really quiet and then has this kind of slow melodic thing when the band comes in and I'm like what the fuck they just lost all the steam and then when the song really starts it's this awesome super short hardcore song where Fat Mike is saying fuck you Paul Burkett his dad I'm glad that you are dead and it's just like awesome hard hitting song but like that first 30 seconds of the song just ruined the momentum of the CD. Like it had this, this awesome start and then just kind of like meanders and then gets hard again. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? And that really is kind of a, a metaphor for the whole album because it seems like there's really great songs in there, but it can't decide which style it wants to be. And sometimes they're really great at that when they do like... The War on Errorism was a good example of that. Or 
So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes is probably the best example of that, where they change styles repeatedly. But for some reason, I think it's a lot to do with the sequencing of these songs. I talked to my friend Joel from Sound Convictions, and, and we were submitting each other alternate track lists that would make the, the album better. And I really think that it suffered from that. Um, additionally, Cameron Webb, who had produced Pennywise and Ignite and done some really great, huge-sounding records, did not seem to know what to do with no effects. He gave them a very modern, overproduced kind of sound. And, you know, there'd be a flanger over the drum fill for some reason, and there'd be harmonies. Like, they're, like Hefe is an amazing singer. He's hardly on the record. You're getting all these, like, guest people doing the harmonies, and they're mixed louder than the lead vocals they mix louder than everything they just pop up over the top and uh, i just i didn't understand some of the creative choices there so no effects had some really fucking great songs still one of my favorite bands but had to get them on the honorable mentions this year another one suffered from production blink 182 a huge band in my life i really love them i really love this new album However, again, if there are skippable songs, which there are, I'm going to have to uh, lose some points for that. So Blink California is the name of the album, produced by John Feldman. I was really excited when I heard that because Tom DeLonge, who was the, one of the two lead singers in the band, one of the primary songwriters, had been off doing his own band for years and years. And like whenever Blink would get back together, he seemed very half-hearted, not interested and as a fan, it kind of bummed me out. And, and a lot of the later, weirder, creative input seemed to come from his direction. Whereas when Mark would sing a song, Mark Hoppus, it would be very much classic Blink, poppy, up-tempo, heartfelt lyric, but, you know, just a good, catchy punk song. And I felt like Tom was kind of the source of their weirdness and their deviation from that. So... When he left and they got Matt Skiba from Alkaline Trio, I thought, you know, this this might actually work. Who knows? I'll give it a chance. And, you know, both him and Mark have a very uh, similar sensibility in, in pop songwriting. And then they got John Feldman, who is not only a masterful producer, pop producer, but he is the songwriter and frontman from Goldfinger who's one of my all-time favorite bands. I love them. They're an amazing live band. Literally set Guinness Book of World Record for the most live shows in a single year. Not Metallica, fucking Goldfinger. Like, that guy is a workhorse in pop punk, and, and he knows that shit better than anybody. So when he signed on, people on the internet are shit-talking, and I'm like, fuck you. Nobody knows pop punk better than john feldman except maybe again bill stevenson the master so john feldman did some co-writing on the album which in some parts is great i can hear it sounds like classic kind of goldfinger influence there's a little real big fish reference in one of the songs that i loved there's some really cool collaborations however I've forgotten that he is very much a like major, major label, manufactured pop star kind of producer nowadays, because I haven't followed him in a while since Goldfinger's kind of been inactive. But uh, in recent years, it seems like he's done these um, kind of like 
pseudo boy bands. Um, I'm blanking on the names. They're like like Five Seconds of Summer, I think, and and those those kind of bands. And so everything is like super auto tune, super cleaned up, and and manipulated, and like the that like Blink has used things like that in the past. When you listen to their older records, it's mixed more like a band. So those things like in the vocal aren't obnoxiously evident. It's not the most. Uh, it's not the first thing you notice about the song, you know. It kind of suffers from that modern pop production where you you hear it and you're like, oh, cool, I want to turn it up and hear the band really kicking in, hear Travis Barker hitting those fucking drums hard, and it loses something, like, because you turn it up to hear that and feel that energy, but the vocals are so much louder than the band and they're all super cleaned up and fucked with and I don't know, it just didn't sound right to me the whole time and there's some really cool songs on there like especially that first single they came out with such a good song i absolutely love it but there's a couple kind of turds in there you know i feel like the song san diego is totally out of place on there there's another one uh, i can't remember but i found i really enjoyed that album when i skipped like two or three songs as i was listening to it like if i could do it in the right time you know again kind of a sequencing problem then it becomes a really strong album but i still wish that some of the uh you know like mixed decisions had been had felt more just like the the band playing you know the throw in like a little travis barker mistake and like oh fuck i fucked up you know like we're still punk rock guys but it's just a little little too pop leaning in the production even though I love that about them in their songwriting. So that's Blink California. What else do I got? I've got Avenged Sevenfold. That one is called The Stage and some of you guys might already turn off your attention span right now at the words Avenged Sevenfold. However, Brooks Wackerman is one of the best drummers alive as far as i'm concerned for rock music and he's been i first heard him in the vandals 99 2000 he did an album with the vandals he did an album with suicidal tendencies around that time called freedom and he's just a monster of a drummer and then he joined bad religion and completely revived their career for the last 15 years and anybody who didn't listen to him in the late 90s, you know, you can blame Atlantic Records or you could blame Brett not being in the band and running Epitaph Records, whatever. But, like, straight up, Brooks was the fire under their ass. He took them to a whole new level. And you can say, a lot of, peop- a lot of people say, the best Bad Religion records are the ones in the late 80s and the early 90s. But to me, honestly, they're the ones 2001 to present. I mean, they just banged out the process of belief, the Empire Strikes First, New Maps of Hell, Descent of Man. I mean, they're all fantastic records. So, Brooks Wackerman left the band recently to join Avenge Sevenfold. Now, Avenge Sevenfold had one of the best drummers alive until he was no longer with us. That is Jimmy Sullivan, also known as The Rev. Now, he died a number of years ago, and the last album that they wrote with him he died while it was being made. And so Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater, who is just a legend, he came into the studio and they had him replay from the demos exactly what Jimmy had written. And 
I felt it totally was, it was some of the best music they had ever made. It was a really great record. It's called Nightmare. And after that, uh, they put out a very like kind of hard rock, kind of boring sounding record with uh, a different drummer. So I was excited to see what Brooks brought to the band. And this album came out of nowhere. They said it was going to come out in like two months or something. And then they just suddenly released it one day. The entire thing, it's like a concept album about fucking space and science. And I don't, I don't understand it. I don't remember the synopsis. But it's crazy good musicianship. And the only reason I didn't put it in my top ten, because it's hands down better playing than anybody in my top ten. But it's, uh, you know, it loses its accessibility, I guess. Because they've always had proggy elements, but in really, you know, then they would come back and give you like a, a great catchy Metallica kind of riff or something, or they would give you a really strong uh, raspy Iron Maiden kind of chorus with the vocal. And uh, I feel like those moments were kind of missing uh, a little bit. You know, Matt Shadows wasn't doing his most awesome, powerful vocals, I felt, on this one. But still a real accomplishment in in performance and in and in songwriting i mean they they take it they take it to new places you listen to sinister gates and think how could this guy play any crazier than he did on city of evil and you know every record he challenges himself in new ways so it, it's, it's cool to hear um and i have two more on my honorable mentions and that'll wrap up this first half hour so i want to talk about pears if you don't know pears, that's P-E-A-R-S, like the food that I don't eat. Because when I go to the grocery store, we get to the produce section, and I just kind of wait for my wife to grab the things that she eats. And uh, you know, maybe I'll grab a, a, a juice smoothie or something, and then I'll walk past that to the uh, gross uh, you know, boxed food and packaged things because I'm disgusting and don't eat real food. So pears... Is a great band on Fat Records who seemed to kind of come out of nowhere. A couple of years ago, they put out an album called Go to Prison, and it is phenomenal. Like, they stole their, their logo from Fear, and they made these songs that are a cross between just, like, frantic, spastic, thrashy, hardcore, like, dead fucking serious plays that I really like, and then some catchy, hooky, propagandi, no use for a name kind of old fat wreck sounding melodies and riffs. And so the songs jumped around just a little bit to kind of show you their influences on that first record. And on this new one, it almost feels like listening to a great fat comp. Like you're getting this sound and then they're totally switching gears and giving you this sound and then totally switching gears again and giving you this sound and they all kind of work under the umbrella of punk rock but a lot of subgenres in there a lot of different influences actually on that first record they would throw in little vocal things where they're literally like quoting other punk bands like all right, this is Rancid. We'll see you guys later. You know, like shit like that, doing his Tim Armstrong impression. That was a really bad impression. I don't know what I was doing. Anyway, they do shit like that just to like 
really pay homage to their bands that came before them and influenced them. Now, on this record, uh, not so much. They really took a leap in songwriting and in creativity. But to me, I like those really short, thrashy songs, and I wanted a little bit more hardcore out of it. So that's the only reason I don't put it in my top. Last one on this honorable mention list is A Tribe Called Quest. And I was late to that one. I was really excited when I heard that it was coming out. R.I.P. Fife Dog, you're a legend. Um, first rap show I ever saw was Beastie Boys and Tribe. And, you know, Midnight Marauders is just one of my favorite golden age records. You know, it's such a, it's just a masterpiece of storytelling and and production and good vibes. And anyway, so this new record is the last thing that we're going to get with Tribe which I don't think anyone ever expected anything. You know, when they played a couple years ago on Fallon, I heard that they were so excited by that that they went to the studio like the next day or that night and just started working. But I remember watching that shit on TV going, wow, I can't really believe that they're all there. This is pretty amazing. And so I I got this uh, late. Uh, I couldn't afford to buy a couple records for a minute. And so uh, I got it right after Christmas. And it is a really good record man it's it's totally got new sounds but it it feels like that old tribe shit like it, it does not feel like some fucking half-baked reunion record this is like exactly that vibe that you missed and it's so exciting and the only reason i put it down here is because i just got it a few days ago and i haven't really had a chance to uh, get to know it real well but i've i've really enjoyed it so far man it's it's nice to hear everybody in top form and and again the production is just so good it just moves you it's just you can't put that on and not crank it up and just rock out to it it's great so those are the honorable mentions. Uh, if you've gotten this far, I appreciate it. Now, we're going to get into the top 10. I think I should probably go from 10 to 1. I think that's how these things are generally done. We'll count down with the shit, all right? So bear with me, all right? So Blueprint is my number 10. He has a record called Vigilante Genesis, produced by Aesop Rock and it's an EP that's a concept album that is very much a comic book story come to life. And if you sit down with the record and, and listen with the lyrics, the story he tells is really fascinating. And, uh, you know, he created this character and this scene, this, this, this uh, kind of back alley dealings of criminals and... Uh, I don't want to tell you too much about it, but it's it's pretty interesting. And you're getting this guy witnessing and following and investigating and cracking some skulls. You know, they actually have some good action sequences in the song. Like, it's it's great. You know, I haven't heard this kind of really cool storytelling since, like, Ghostface or something. And I will also say that print just sounds really young and full of energy and inspired on this record it's it's the kind of energy we haven't heard from him off stage in a long time because i think his records have mellowed uh even though his his live performance is still very 
energetic. This has definitely got some of that that young print energy, just just really hungry. And it sounds it sounds exciting and fresh. And Aesop makes some more. Uh, I don't want to turn you off by saying experimental, but there, it's like each beat is a. It's like the color scheme of that 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 panel or that page of the comic, you know? It's cool stuff. It's cool stuff. It's not like some weird-ass bazooka tooth shit that you can't get down to. Like, it's cool stories, cool music. I think I think you really like it. So that's Blueprint Vigilante Genesis. Next up, I'm going to say Radiohead. Now, Radiohead put out an amazing record this year. Uh, the name is escaping me right now for some reason. Let me look that up, actually. There we go. That's why I couldn't remember. It's a weird fucking name. Radiohead, A Moon-Shaped Pool. Now, that record is a number of things, but what first grabbed me was the, the first track has this great percussive string section. And if you know Radiohead, Johnny Greenwood, their guitarist, is a composer. And I remember when he first started doing films, I had gone to see There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day-Lewis, partially because I knew Johnny Greenwood did the score. And I bought the soundtrack, and we even made some illusionist beats out of it, I think. And it's just cool stuff. And so they've done a number of albums that were kind of more electronic influence and, and you know different things. But on this one, I feel like he's really bringing his film composition into the band's songwriting and it works really well within the sound of the band and then if you keep going there is some more mellow but electronic kind of kid a amnesiac kind of stuff going on and then there's some really sweet like nick drake elton john 70s acoustic gentle strings just really nice sweet kind of songs in there and i i think it's i think it's easily going to go down as one of their best records like i personally for me it's it's okay computer and in rainbows and i i'd put this up there with those i think it's really really well done so that's radiohead a moon-shaped pool at number eight on my list bouncing souls no one can beat us we drink beer and wear adidas that's right bouncing souls Simplicity, that's at number eight. This record, they went through a lineup change, as had Avenged Sevenfold that I mentioned. You know, I didn't mention that about Sum 41. It's kind of their return of uh, of Dave, the brown sound, their old uh, metal-influenced lead guitarist. He does some pretty amazing things on that new Sum 41. All right, so back to lineup changes in the Bouncing Souls. They had... Mike McDermott, who was playing with them for many years, again, kind of revitalized their career, beginning with How I Spent My Summer Vacation, which was also, I believe, in the late 90s, 2000 era, right around the time that Brooks Wackerman joined Bad Religion. And they both just had a creative renaissance there, uh, uh, just a great period of, of consistently good albums. And what happened with The Balancing Souls is they went from each unique and, and great album from from Maniacal Laughter, Self-Titled, uh, Hopeless Romantic, 
summer vacation, anchors away, which I really felt was the best and is the most raw and stripped down. And then they went to the gold album, which was almost the more like produced and nuanced record. It was kind of the opposite of anchors away. And yet it was still really good. And then after that, we got a couple records that were just kind of seeming like recreating the gold album. It was just kind of going through the motions. It was a little slower, a little softer, and it just didn't have that fire. You know, we went and saw that band. My wife and I, we saw Bouncing Souls on their 20th anniversary tour, and they seriously walked out there, played 10 songs without stopping before they even said, hi, we're the Bouncing Souls. Like, it was amazing. And to see that kind of energy and then listen to the new record, and it's just kind of, you know, slow and... You're like, oh yeah, I guess we should make a new record kind of thing. Even the one with Bill Stevenson called Comet really was kind of a, a, a letdown to me. So, this new album, Simplicity, they've got new drummer, new energy, and I feel like it's one of those great albums that kind of embodies their whole career. Starts out with a really fast song, but it's not a typical Bouncing Souls fast song because it has this really cool, like, three four swing to it like the phrasing of it is way different even though the punk beat is still super fast uh like you're used to and not in a weird technical way either it's it's a really cleverly written song and from there it kind of runs the gamut all the different things that you love about the band you know it's got the the slower introspective song like like gone from summer vacation you know they've got the song bees like Bees in a hive. Well, we know what we survive. All this living just to die. Like it's a fucking great, catchy ass song. Great lyric, and and Greg is such an effortless singer. It's so. Um, the last couple records felt like they're kind of a, just a showcase for him. Maybe less input from the band or something. This one feels like the fucking band again, and you're still getting all this great elevated singing and what i mean elevated is from from the early years he's gotten better and better on every album but you're really getting to explore that again in the context of of this this youthful energy of the band and it just feels really great highly recommended bouncing souls simplicity next up i've got green day revolution radio now is that a silly name yes it's kind of a silly name however First thing I do when I put it on, I'm like, oh shit, that sounds kind of like The Who. And it's got this uh, great kind of classic rock beginning to the album. And I can tell, though, we're not in rock opera territory, which is, I kind of think, what most people expect from them. Their last album was actually three albums in a row, Uno Dos Trey, and those records to me were really exciting because they were back to just writing typical kind of Green Day pop punk songs and there were some that were more like Warning that were a little mellow or acoustic and then there was some that were more like Nimrod that were introspective but uh, you know kind of three chord punk songs and I thought those records were really great you know maybe you could trim it down to a double album that'd be exceptional I don't know but a lot of people miss that because of what was going on with uh, Billy Joe's rehab and public outbursts and stuff so on this new record apparently they didn't tell anybody including the label that they were making it 
They didn't hire a producer. They just went into this little studio in Oakland and they just made it. They just wrote songs. And it feels like that. Like the first single, Bang Bang, which totally captures the live energy of the band, just feels like classic Green Day song. And, you know, they had nobody there looking over their shoulder, telling them what to do, you know. And they had no grand scheme to make some crazy statement it was just let's let's go and write songs have fun again be a band again billy was down a really bad path they didn't know if the band was going to be around anymore guess what we got the band back together we got the band back together let's write some fucking songs man that's what it feels like and you can you can feel their excitement oh side note billy has said in interviews repeatedly that it was really hard to get into the mindset of these mass shooter types for writing the song Bang Bang. And he talks about these these people who are seeking fame and notoriety by committing some terrorist act. That in and of itself is a statement that makes complete sense to anyone. However, in the context of the band's catalog, that's kind of fucking weird because the song on Dookie called Having a Blast, like in my mind, it was always like a school shooting. He's like picking people off. You know, no one here was getting out alive. This time I've really lost my mind and I don't care. So close your eyes and kiss yourself goodbye. And to me, it's nothing. And he goes through this fucking horrific scene. And uh, that was 22 years ago, 23 years ago. So apparently he has forgotten about that. But uh, he has written in that headspace before. Anyway, the third song, title track, Revolution Radio. Again, not a great title, sounds kind of silly, very uh, 13-year-old kind of punk lyric, but the goddamn melody is so good. That is one of the most classic, catchy-ass Green Day songs I could think of, man. It's, it's so good. I can't say it enough. If you're a fan of this band and this kind of music, it's a great pop-punk song. And the song I think they put out as a single, uh, most recently, Still Breathing, it's, it's just a phenomenal vocal performance it's a great well-written song great melodies you know a lot of people like the you know dingier 90s green day and i personally do too you know insomniac is what got me into that hey another winston smith album cover insomniac is what got me into the band you know that's a jerry finn album you know jerry finn produced as well as uh the that classic blink stuff that i was talking about you know great producer great it's pop punk but with a real punk rock edge to it you know felt like a real band but you got to think about it man the dude's like 40 something now and he's going to be in a different point in his life and all those records he's made and all those tours he's made he's learned a thing or two about songwriting Okay, so they can make a great three chord song like Bang Bang, but then they can turn around and give you Still Breathing that is light years ahead of some of those old songs in terms of, of its composition. It really is. It's really a great song. Sure, it might be kind of a, a mainstream sounding commercial single, but goddamn if it isn't a good song. So that is number seven, Green Day. Revolution Radio. Number six, I'm going to throw some rap at you. Aesop Rock. That's right. Ace has got two albums in my top ten. 
Vigilante Genesis, and this one, The Impossible Kid. Now, as I said before, I haven't listened to a ton of rap music lately because I've been really focused on DFS and getting this punk record not only out, but when I was writing it. I've just been listening to punk rock a lot, and Aesop is the one thing that I would throw on on occasion when it was time for, for some rap stuff. This new record, as someone who's been a fan for like 15 years, really most of the artists in this top 10 I've been a fan of for a long, long time, since middle school. This album is a huge step forward because the production is great. It's always great with Aesop. The lyrics are great. They're always great with Aesop. But what happened is he stripped away a little bit of the metaphor. And he kind of went from the heart and told you some some real stories about his life. And you feel like you get to know the guy a lot better on this record than you ever have before. I think it's exceptional just for how relatable it is. And I feel like that matches how well written it is. You know, he didn't dumb it down to do this. He didn't necessarily simplify, but he took a more direct approach. You still listen to the guy and he like never rhymes the same word twice. He's still really clever with his craft and the way he puts words together. But he's giving you a little more autobiographical background on this that I I think is just fantastic. And the whole album front to back has a great flow to it. There's not a bad song on it. There's not a bad segue. Shout out to my friend Carnage who was featured on the song Tough doing the beatbox. The whole third verse of this song it breaks down you know like when you see somebody live and the dj will throw on a different record in that last verse and it's like oh fuck and the crowd goes crazy well in this case it happens the beat kind of starts breaking down and you hear this all these different sounds coming up and for anybody who's seen carnage he's using a lot of his signature sounds he's got them slipped in there and it's it's fucking great it's so exciting it's so much fun just to hear that and i got to see aesop a month or two ago my brother took me out to the show after my birthday and uh uh i'm up there in the front row practically and and he plays that song and i get to hear my dude carnage up there like i've seen aesop so many times you know since high school and and in that room at the wow hall and and you know it was just so cool to see that come together and and not only that but at that show he played a full hour of new material His set is entirely new material. That's how good the new album is. That a guy like that, that people want to go out and hear their fucking favorite songs, can go out there and do a solid hour of new shit. And people are hooked and they're fucking loving it. That's how good his new album is. It's not just because it went number one. That's awesome. Congrats to him and congrats to Rhyme Sayers for that happening. That's amazing. Still the songs are that good the new material is that good that he can go out there and play to his old fans for an hour brand new shit and kill it and then the last half hour oh by the way you want nunshell pass here you go oh you want daylight and nightlight here you go you want no regrets oh you didn't think i was gonna do that shit here you go it's like a thank you for sticking with me 
through all these changes and, and new material and stuff. And it's so good. It was all worth the wait. It was so good. Highly recommended The Impossible Kid. And also, it's got a beautiful album cover from Alex Pardee, who has done work with Cage. He's done work with The Used. He's another one of my very favorite uh, album cover artists. Check that out, Impossible Kid. It's got an awesome fold-out poster in it, too. So that's number six. Now we're in to the top five, okay? I think we're making decent time here. I'm a few minutes behind what I wanted. doesn't matter. I'm excited about music. I love talking about it. Hopefully, you're excited about music. You love listening to it. Number five, Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Getaway. All right? This might be the subject of some controversy because I know some people have strong opinions about the Chili Peppers. A lot of people will say they don't like that band because, uh, you know, they don't like Anthony Kiedis' weird gibberish raps. I saw Henri say some shit about that the other day. Whatever, that's, that's, that's on you. I don't necessarily have to, to like everything you like and vice versa. That's cool. A lot of people will say they love the Chili Peppers, but only until like 1991 or some shit. And, and they don't like the, the melodic stuff, the John Frusciante influence that came, Californication, by the way, uh, Stadium Arcadium and so on. You know, they don't, they don't like that. That Beach Boys influence, that Beatles influence, that's not for them. They want the hard-hitting funk rap stuff. That's cool. That's cool. You know what? That's not my favorite era of the band. My favorite era is the, the John Frusciante later years. Now, a lot of people will also tell you that's their favorite, and they can't listen to the band now that John's gone. Okay? To line up change, yes. It's a relatively minor one. Let me tell you why. John Frusciante is a fucking guitar god and a creative genius. I'll say that again. John Frusciante is a fucking guitar god and a creative genius. All right? He is. But the person who replaced him in the band, Josh Klinghoffer, is John Frusciante's closest confidant and collaborator. Did you know that shit? Okay? So in 2004... They had put out By The Way, and John had put out his kind of comeback solo album, Shadows Collide With People. Then in, that was 2003. So 2004, John releases six solo albums. John Frusciante released six solo albums in a row. Now, on Shadows Collide With People and on those six solo albums, almost everything was done with Josh Klinghoffer. He was the drummer on a lot of it. He played guitar. He sang. They worked closely. One of the records even is credited as John Frusciante and Josh Klinghoffer. Okay? He's a huge uh, part of, of John's creative life. Now, Josh, who I always admired as a drummer from those records, and if you hear some of my solo stuff, like my Daydream album that's coming, you can hear influence of, of those records they did in my music as well. But when they announced the replacement was going to be Josh, I thought, oh, thank God. No worries on my end. And I'm With You was the album that came out, uh, I think, in 2011 with Josh, and it was great. I know I'm giving you a lot of backstory, but there's reasons here. 
This band has changed and evolved over 30 years, okay? I've got I've to give you this. So they put out I'm With You, and to me it felt like it picked up exactly where Stadium Arcadium had left off. Now, gone are the ripping guitar solos, crazy, you know, shit like that. But that's really the only album, aside from maybe Blood Sugar Sex Magic, where you have that virtuoso kind of guitar playing. You know, John usually played to the song, and he didn't go that over the top. So I'm thinking he knew it was going to be his last album, and he wanted to just go to town. But, uh, again, that was kind of a, a deviation. That was an exception on Stadium Arcadium. So I'm With You really felt like a continuation of what the band had already been doing. And for that reason, maybe it didn't turn a lot of heads. You know, maybe it seemed unremarkable for that reason, but I thought it was, it was really well written. It was solid. They put out a vinyl release, uh, I'm Beside You, that was all of the B-sides from the album that was just as good, I thought. And they, they did a lot of great songwriting together. But it wasn't really a step forward. It was just kind of a lateral move. You know, I thought Josh held it down. He did great. But... uh they just kept the sound going. So, this new record, The Getaway, this is a departure. It's the first time they haven't worked with Rick Rubin since, I don't know, 1989 or some shit was the last time they made a record without him. And, you know, Rick Rubin is a very vibe, mood. He's very much about the the energy of the song, the flow of the the songs, the sequencing, stuff like that, I feel like is his gift. You know, he can get stripped down the bullshit and get to the heart of the band and what they're best at. They decided to try something new and went with Danger Mouse, who I primarily know through hip-hop records, you know, or or Gnarls Barkley or something. And I was kind of worried about that. And some of my worries were confirmed when I heard it. You know, the first single they put out, I believe it was Dark Necessities, and it's like a sample drum loop or something. Whatever it is, it's not Chad Smith. Chad Smith is arguably my favorite drummer alive. He's, he's a tremendous groove drummer. He hits hard, but he has a magic swing. A lot of people don't appreciate Chad Smith because he doesn't shred, you know, like the Rev or whatever, but that dude has feel that those shredder guys couldn't replicate if they practiced all fucking day they couldn't do it because it's just in him he has that that soul funk swing in him with the power of a rock drummer he's a great drummer and he's absent from some of these songs like in the music video i was bummed out because i'm like hearing the drum sample thing and then it shows the band and like chad is hammering away on the kit but that's not what i'm hearing and that bummed me out when the, the, the record came out and, and it was kind of something I had to get over. But the more I listened to it, the more it's just really beautiful songwriting. And then later you do get some good Chad grooves in there and, and it really feels like the band again. But I feel like the, the melodies, the Anthony and Josh use are just so beautiful and it's a really nice, serene kind of album. Uh, maybe akin to to by the way but in a more modern version not quite as like beach boys rock influenced but it still has that 
that sweetness to the vocal and the melody. And it just, it's a really beautiful, well put together record. I know I gave you mostly context and very mu little about the actual album, but I, I think it's, it's, it's an accomplishment. It flows great from front to back. And it's something I've listened to over and over at work because, uh, and I need mellow records to listen to at work, and that's been consistently one of my favorites. So highly recommended The Getaway. Check that out. Next up, I've got number four, which is another one of my all-time favorites. Here we go. Thrice. Yeah. Thrice is back, and they they broke up or went on indefinite hiatus a couple years ago. I didn't really think I'd ever see them again. And to be honest, I kind of lost interest. The Deer Hunter had kind of filled that void for me in a band that always kept you guessing and made really uh, creative, progressive records, you know, that were related to punk and hardcore without necessarily being punk and hardcore. I liked it. And they had kind of mellowed out in their last couple albums, particularly the, the last one they did before the hiatus, Major Minor. It was pretty much they felt like they were acoustic songs that were just done with distortion and f coming from a legacy of crazy intricate guitar work and song structures it was kind of disappointing to to me and and some of my friends who were longtime fans if you strip down the songs they're really good if you if you watch some of the acoustic versions you know there's some great stuff on there but it just didn't hit as an album so when this came out i didn't expect too much and that first fucking single, Blood in the Sand. Oh my God, Jesus Christ. I, th I think that might very well be the song of the year. That, that one or there's another that's on my number three. But God, it's so good. I felt like it sums up the time we're living in so perfectly. And, and Dustin has always been a great lyricist, but just really, really fucking shines on this album. And particularly in this song, because he was singing with that passion and authority that he had years ago that fucking just belting that shit out you know there's there's blood in the sand there's blood in the streets there's a gun in my hand and i'm or there might as well be and i'm sick of it but when he says it it's i'm sick of it and it's like he belts it and it's fucking phenomenal and he you know he goes for the high note but he fucking slays it with that ferocity of you know kind of middle 2000s thrice and man it's just a, a well-written song and it's an album full of well-written songs and they put out that song uh, black honey i think that's the name and again it felt like kind of a straightforward rock song when i saw the video and didn't think much of it but then when i heard the album and listened to everything together god damn it's just a great song there's another one about drones in the military like drone operators writing from their perspective and dropping death on people that they never actually see or meet and how uh, fucked up that must be you know from from that perspective just just tremendous songwriting and again you're not going to get the shreddy stuff that they did on their you know first three albums or whatever they're not that band anymore but they're not afraid to be heavy again and that's something that really appealed to me and I think this is my wife's favorite album of the year, and it's it's definitely up there for mine, uh, for me as well. So thrice, to be everywhere is to be nowhere. That's the new record. That's my number four. Number three. This is where it started to get really tricky, okay? 
I'm going to give it to the Interrupters. And I will say that Thrice and the Interrupters on this list might be kind of interchangeable. I'm not sure because I really like them. There's some great music that came out this year. But the Interrupters, okay? Band I discovered a couple years ago on Hellcat Records, produced by Tim Armstrong from Rancid. Great ska band, okay? No horns. Kind of a punkier ska band. Uh, Female vocals, raspy too not not like not like paramore not like that that kind of dance hall crashers you know not like that style but you know and i hate to make this comparison because i'm sure they get it a lot but you know like brody dal from the distillers that's really what it reminded me of she's got this great grit to her voice and such a keen ear for melody like they on their debut i repeatedly would comment on everything they put online because you could only buy their debut album on vinyl or digital and personally I don't listen to shit on the computer and my record player is strictly for sampling I want that CD so I kept bugging Hellcat and commenting on everything and they finally put it out on CD and I was so excited and I, I never took the thing out of my deck I listened to it all the time to this day and this year they came out with a new one already so fast and it's so good like they didn't deviate from the sound at all but somehow it's more developed it's more nuanced every song is killer you know there's there's ska there's punk there's there's everything catchy there's everything catchy but it's got such a a real grounded feeling you know they're real fucking people and for a young up-and-coming band man it's I feel like it's so rare. I think all of the band members are brothers. The bassist and drummer are twins. And the guitar player, I believe, is is also a brother of theirs. Because I saw them live, and they all basically look the same. And they dress the same. And they just they play so well together. They write these great songs. And Amy Interrupter, the singer, is just fucking phenomenal man i'm in love with her voice it's it's just it's so good in the songs that they write um what i would probably say is my favorite song of the year was she got arrested and it's the second song in the cd and it's a ska song and has this great kind of rancid outcome the wolves feel to it and then you know choppy little lead guitar line in between and, and it's great but the story drew me in it felt like a classic country song it reminded me very much of johnny cash and so i think this came out in like may this album and i did a i I was working on some acoustic material in june and july and so i i started playing a like a johnny cash kind of version of this song she got arrested and and i I performed it once but I i played it a lot a lot around the house and when I was rehearsing stuff and writing. and um, When I saw them in Portland a couple months ago, the whole band hung out, met everyone in the crowd, signed, took pictures. They're just great people. And, you know, I mentioned how much I love the song and how I'd been singing uh, kind of a country folk version of it. And uh, Amy, their singer, was really kind about it. She's, she acted excited. She thought that was so cool to be interpreted that way told me I should record it and send it to them and so actually last night uh, on New Year's Day I recorded it and posted it on YouTube you can check that out 
My YouTube page is video.take92.com. Uh, don't tell me if it is. Maybe I made a questionable decision. I sing the whole song low in that baritone like this, like I'm speaking now, you know, in that Johnny Cash register. And then at the end, I take it up an octave and sing it like hers. But uh, maybe that was ill-advised. Maybe I should have kept the whole thing down there. I don't know. Sometimes my high voice isn't as strong. <laughs> That's okay. I know that. It's just a fun song to sing, and I really love the story. It's a badass female story, okay? I won't say any, any more than that, but it's got a, it's got a definite hero to that story, and, uh, and she kicks some ass. It's great. Specifically, one line in that song in the second verse is just fucking great. All right, so that is The Interrupters. Say It Out Loud is the name of that album. It's on Hellcat. Look it up. It's probably in your local record store. If not, get that shit online from Hellcat. It's so good if you're a fan of punk and ska music. You're looking for something to fill that void. I mean, Less Than Jake is still putting out good records, but let's be real. Like, how many how many bands that we grew up on are still doing that and doing it well? Okay, Real Big Fish, I'm looking at you. It's not the same, Okay. Boston's once in a while will do it, but it's it's pretty rare. These guys are killing it. They're out there touring with everybody. They're going on a fucking tour with Green Day in Europe. They're the opening band on the, the Green Day European tour. That's amazing. I'm so stoked for these guys. They're genuine people, great songwriters. So that's the Interrupters, number three. Number two, this is another one you might not know. Useless ID. This is a Fat Records band. Another Fat Rec uh, band on my list. Now... I didn't really know their music. I knew the name. I think I heard them on comps. I think they did a split with the Ataris back in the day. But I didn't really know them. They never really stood out to me for whatever reason. So, 2013, I believe, I wound up on the Fat Rec YouTube channel. I'm looking at, you know, what are they putting out these days? I haven't heard much out of them other than NoFX for a while. You know, Tony Sly has been gone from No Use for Name. He passed away. Hadn't heard anything out of Good Riddance in a while. I see this video for Useless ID. Click on it. No expectation. It's amazing. Okay, the album was called Symptoms, and it's power pop, pop punk, whatever you want to call it. It reminded me of Sugar Cult towards the end. Like, it's a more serious, introspective kind of pop punk mid-tempo not fast newfound glory stuff it's but it's just it's really really good record and that was my introduction to them so i thought that's what they did when i heard this new album was coming out um i don't do these you know album comes out this week here's a f- stream a full album stream on soundcloud on spotify whatever one i don't have spotify but two i really like that experience like i said you go and buy the album you take it home put it in you sit on the couch you open this the lyric book and the artwork and everything i like that experience so sometimes though i'll listen to the first song so useless id posts new album stream comes out this week cool click on it track one first sound you hear i'm like what the fuck is happening this is amazing um and it's some straight up like fucking old rise against fast melodic hardcore like great catchy hook but still like kind of gets some grit in his voice and he's full on just tearing into these verses 
and I couldn't believe it. And like for a second, I'm going, is this the same band? Did I follow the wrong band by mistake? This is insane. And so I listened to the second song and it's more of that fast, melodic, hardcore shit. Like it's great. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And, and I, I'm, I'm honestly questioning, like it sounds like them. It sounds like a Bill Stevenson, Jason Livermore production at the Blasting Room. But this shit is fucking ferocious, man. Like, it's it's amazing. Third song. Okay, that's that pop-punk pop, pop band that I loved. They're still in there. Weird. Okay, so I stop right there. I'm going to buy this record. Came out the same day as Blink-182, actually. But it worked to my advantage because the I think the vinyl came out the same day as Blink-182. And the CD came out a week later. I went to go buy it and they didn't have it. They said the CD comes out next week. So I bought Blink, listened to it, enjoyed it mostly. Went back the next Friday. Got Status Burning, a useless ID. Holy shit. I was playing this album on the Rare Form Tour. I didn't drive for once on this tour. We were in the RV from Skeptic and Double Dragon. So I'm not controlling the music. The last day we're driving. And I was like, can I please pick the music? It's the middle of the night. I put on. Useless ID, state is burning. Skeptics like, who the fuck is this? This is awesome. Ogar Burl, he was sleeping above the fucking seats. He like climbs down. It's like, what are you listening to? It's like, this sounds like, you know, 2000, 2004 in the best way possible or whatever. And I was like, I know this is useless ID. Like they've been around forever, I guess. But like, I was late to the party. They're fucking, this is brand new. This just came out. Everybody was loving it, and and it's just such a, a testament to the spirit of that music. Like, when you get the fucking energy right, it's just, there's nothing like it, man. Seriously, like, to, to have a band that's been around like that be able to deliver on that level now, like, Jesus Christ. I mean, I first heard of them in high school, and, you know, didn't blow me away then, but they're doing... It's like their best shit ever right now. It's it's so impressive. And I listened to it over and over and over. And all year I was saying, oh yeah, best album of the year. Best album of the year. The biggest surprise to me. Useless ID. But guess what? State is Burning was number two. I had a hard time giving it number two because I've been saying that all fucking year. But let's be real. Number one... If you follow me, you know what it's going to be. Metallica. I can hear some of you now reaching for the pause button to turn this off and pick another episode or some shit. No, I can tell you, though, they've been one of my biggest influences and my favorite bands since I was like 13 years old. If you think of me being 13, okay, in 1999... The albums that they've put out new since I've listened to them, okay? The studio albums. You want to talk Say Anger, Death Magnetic, Lulu with Lou Reed, okay? Two out of the three being some of the most reviled, detested albums in recent rock history, okay? One of them, Death Magnetic, actually being very good. Uh, despite having some atrocious uh, problems in the mix and master. 
I've been waiting for this day for a long time. Metallica puts out a video. I'm on the Rare Form Tour. Skeptic goes, hey, have you seen this? Hands me his phone. It's playing a Metallica video of them now. It's like crazy strobe lights, black and white, choppy cuts, and fast-ass thrash metal. I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is amazing. I stopped it. I was like, I don't want to hear this for the first time on a cell phone. This is a record that needs to be fucking cranked up, bass hitting me in the chest, punching me all in the face. And so I listened to half of it and was like, holy shit, that I'm excited for that, but I have to stop because I want my first taste to be real. So I waited. Then they put out the second single, Moth Into Flame. I was home. I could play it on my studio monitors. I watched that. And then I rewatched that first one, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. And I'm like, what the fuck? This shit is amazing. Like, I haven't heard him do shit like this. Uh, really, my, my whole life, new material like this. I mean, it's incredible. And it, it like Hardwired is a short, thrashy song. It's like three minutes long. And it's kind of like a sped up version of uh, Holier Than Thou with that like snare riff. You know, it's like a fast ass, you know, punky thrash version of that kind of a riff. And like in the chorus, they're just holding out the chords and James Hetfield is like, we're so fucked. Shit out of luck. And uh, people are like, man, the lyrics are really going downhill. And I'm like, dude, are you kidding? Like, this is like some kill em all shit. Like, listen to the phrasing and the way that they're they're playing it, man. It's, it's awesome. And Moth into Flame came out. And it's like some Injustice for All riffs. And I don't mean in like, Death Magnetic had some Injustice for All, like, big, proggy, long songs and stuff and they they were cool but they do sound more like modern metallica a little more down tune and whatever even though it's not they're still playing that way and <laughs> moth into flame is such a testament to their fucking songwriting like i mean this song could have come out you know in 88 as far as i'm concerned it's it's the classic sound and then all those little twists and turns that all you fucking lars ulrich haters you do not appreciate this man's song construction. He's a goddamn genius when it comes to arrangement, okay? Just just, just listen to the last 30 seconds of the song and the way that they resolve the chorus and then do that, that catchy ass, the muffin to the flame, well, that like syncs up with the guitar riff, and then the way that they tie it back to that very first intro riff, it's so fucking seamless. It's so fucking thoughtful and subtle. Like all those tiny little things are uh, like, they're all James's awesome riffs, but dude, seriously, the way that Lars put these songs together is masterful. It's extraordinary. They're so good. That said, I wrote a review of this album. It came out on sound convictions. You may have read it. You may already know my thoughts on this shit, but I've listened to it a lot more since then. I think that though it does go through some twists and turns in genre, it really does just consistently pay off. Because even when there's a song that I'm like, yeah, this one's all right, then it'll take you to this fucking heavy, just annihilate you place that's so good. There's a couple kind of 
clunky intros, even even good intros like Now That We're Dead is a really great, great anthemic song that I wrote about the intro being really pointless. And I still think all the parts of the intro are really good. It just should be done quicker. And that's just me as a punk rocker. Like, I don't have the attention span. If there's if there's a good riff, don't overuse it. You know, I wanna I wanna hear the fucking song kick off. To me, you're just lighting the fuse, and it's going, and you're getting a taste of what's to come. Bam be in the song let the band fucking explode you know let's let's bring it home that's what i want now that's one thing me and laws disagree on i know that james likes the shorter arrangements sometimes i side with him there but as a whole they're really really fucking well done uh, arrangements really well written songs great fucking choruses jesus christ you guys are underestimating james hetfield as a songwriter, man, like, lest we forget, okay, the classics this man has brought, and he's totally writing in that timeless Metallica way of those war stories and battle scars and, and, and those things that are, that are introspective, but not in a, like, saint anger, this is my diary day kind of shit, but in a, like, one from justice way you know in a like the dude who's writing about addiction in master of puppets okay he can write about it now and be just as effective he can it's so good and the best thing though is the closer of of the album and that's 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 where we're gonna leave off on this episode i i don't think i can play it for you on itunes i'll probably get in trouble but look up that song it's so good it's the hardest most uh maniacal thing that they've written like it comes in so hard and you're like holy shit where where did this come from this is after like a really great hard tribute to lemmy and motorhead that came right before it but then it's all of a sudden back in like super thrash territory just punishing mean and they're just going off and the verse comes in and you're like holy christ like uh, to me i am just smiling ear to ear like there are reaction videos of dudes watching or of listening to this for the first time that you can watch on youtube of dudes just losing their shit when this song comes on and the verse it, it's just so fucking mean and it's great and then the chorus you're like holy shit how's it keep getting better and then uh when it repeats it's got this fucking bridge that's ridiculous and you're like how does he keep it's just like once upon a planet burning once upon a flame once upon a planet and it's just like it, it, it never lets up and then it goes on this fucking crazy um technical kirk hammett solo section and uh you're like oh my god it's still going and then it takes you on another direction and another one and then it brings you back for like the heaviest fucking finale and it is the most perfect closing track that they've ever had. I mean, it's so fucking good. Okay, I know, Call of Cthulhu, whatever. Uh, Damage Incorporated. I'm just saying it's up there. It's on that fucking level. It's so good. Easily best thing they've done 
in 25 years since the Black Album. And and maybe you don't like the Black Album. I'm saying it's faster than all of those songs on the Black Album, but the album Hardwired definitely has um, those those little songwriting, you know, Sabbath True kind of lick the heavy, raspy thing that that had a melody to it. You know, they really were learning as songwriters. It has that quality, but applied to that old template of fast, thrashy shit. It's it's a record that really embodies every style they've ever done. They don't shy away from, you know, doing some some reload kind of bluesy Tony Iommi kind of riffs. They don't shy away from anything. They go for it. It's really well done. Phenomenal album. Highly recommended. Silly name, Hardwired to self-destruct with a little ellipsis in there it's dumb but fuck i'm telling you it's well written it's well produced and it's a really great album it's worth your time if you've ever been a fan of them at some point in your life check it out at least that very last song spit out the bone perfect name for a heavy song the last track is spit out the bone and if you get the deluxe edition which is still only like 10 or 15 bucks three discs you get a third disc that has the the song lords of summer which is a really great song that could have easily just been in the album sequence and the all their like tribute medleys they did from maiden and, and uh deep purple but the fucking the dio one is amazing and you can hear the dio influence in in some of the songs too it's it's really well done the the concert on there is all—it's all right. It's not maybe the best one they could have chosen, but but the album itself is fantastic, and and the actual B sides are great too. So, highly recommended Metallica. That is the number one pick on my list. So, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope that people uh, actually listened to it. I try not to look at my numbers, but uh, I have talked myself hoarse. I'm gonna go. I've got a brand new album coming out. January 13th, my band Dead Fucking Serious. It's called Squalor. You can catch me performing that night with Ogar Burl doing some rare form songs. We're opening for R.A. the Rugged Man and Afro. R.A. is one of my favorite MCs. I've wanted to work with him for a long time, so it really means a lot. Performing at the Wow Hall here in Eugene. Um, that's going to be a great show. And then the next day I leave for tour with Dead Fucking Serious. We're going to be doing Portland. Eugene, Olympia, Medford, Berkeley, Sacramento. We're doing some West Coast dates for the Squalor album with our friend Streetlight Cardiacs. If you know Evan from The Illusionist, that's his punk rock band from back in the day. They got back together recently as well. So that's going to be a hell of a time. And then February 3rd through the 19th, I'll be on the Rare Form Winter Tour. That's me and Ogar. We're going out with Double Dragon again, and uh, we've got a new support act on this, this one. Gradient couldn't make it, so we've got uh, NIC, another instant classic. He's uh, a member of the Loeb Trotters Collective, uh, along with Double Dragon. Really cool guy. Met him a few times on tour. Yeah, looking forward to this trip. We're doing all the, the Southwest cities this time, because on the summer leg of the Rare Form Tour, we went from... Oregon to Wisconsin and did all those northern states on this half of the country and now we're going to go California all the way through Texas and 
Oklahoma. So we're going to do the southern loop there. So if you didn't see us on the summer tour, chances are you'll get to see us this time. So Sammy and Ogar, Rare Form Tour, February. DFS, Squalor Tour with Streetlight Cardiacs this January. Thanks for listening. And I'm going to leave you with the brand new single called Pulse about the Orlando, Florida nightclub shooting a few months back. The club itself was called Pulse, and we just filmed a video for this. It's on YouTube, video.take92.com. Yeah, the song is called Pulse by Dead Fucking Serious. Thank you again for listening i hope you enjoy the dfs stuff i just want to say thank you so much to everyone who supported rare form this album that me and ogar burl put out this year well last year now it it really means a lot to me it's it's a it's a it's a great album something i'm really proud of we got plenty more in store for you i know that some people love the punk rock some people don't really care about that stuff that i'm doing Rest assured, I got plenty of rap stuff coming at you in 2017. Peace.